This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we reflect on some of our favourite stories from 2023. We dig into archival conversations with design scions like Theaster Gates and reflect on our time at events like Salone del Mobile. All that and more coming up on Monocle on Design. Hello and welcome to today's show. I am joined in the studio by this show's producer, Maylee Evans. Uh, I mean, I say in the studio, Maylee, you're behind a pane of glass. Maybe one day I'll be free. <laughs> Maybe one day. But at the moment, uh, I'm not trusted to work the, the panels and the levels which you're currently operating on the other side of the studio wall. Is there a day when that's going to happen or...? Maybe next year. But I digress. That's not what this show's about. We're here to reflect on 2023 and the year that was. And I guess just from us talking together, the the way we wanted to do that was to pick a few of our favourite pieces from the year. Why do you think this is an important show to put together? What what do you like about it? Because we do this this every year and we keep coming back to it. As makers for this show, we're covering a lot of ground. We're going between furniture, fashion, graphic design. Um, And it's really easy to forget that actually we've talked to some amazing folks and this isn't material that maybe you listen to once and then is you know disposed of it's stuff that you can return to um over time and reflect on and maybe get some new learnings from or maybe on a, a second revisit so i think it's nice to go back to this material court um out in the field and to just think ah oh, right maybe we can try and do a bit more of this in future for me i i even dig into the archives of this show uh from well before i was i was here obviously we're over 600 episodes i think i've probably worked on about 200 of them but it's 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 nice to even see what's happened in the years gone past but it's amazing how quickly i guess with the metabolism of of media today we can forget about the people that we've already spoken to and we speak to some amazing people. I mean, do I have your permission to kick off the first the first throwback well, I guess, segment? Go on then. Where are we going first, Nick? <laughs> so, I, I mean, I want to take us to the Venice Biennale's International Architecture Exhibition, uh, which uh, took place earlier this year. It's, it's just wrapped up, actually. And I particularly loved my conversation that I had there with Theaster Gates. He's an American artist and designer who, for more than a decade, in addition to you know his own creative work, has been running the Black Art artist retreat. And that's an ongoing project bringing together creatives in Chicago where they reflect on their making practices, but they also talk to each other about the industry and problem solve together. You know, I think it's a a really important initiative that that really is perhaps helping to champion people that maybe don't have the same support networks uh, that more established makers would have. So he presented a film on this project in Venice, and I was lucky enough to talk to him about it. This year, when, uh, when Leslie reached out and said she'd like me to participate, it was right at the same time that I was opening my pavilion for uh, Serpentine. The pavilion Black Chapel felt like the first time I was making a significant public investment in architecture. For the Biennale, I decided that given Black Chapel was about creating a space for people, that here I would focus on a film that celebrated people first and made space secondary, allowing the truth of the the scaffolding of social networks, the ways in which people change the perfume of architecture and how often architecture forgets people. I thought that I would highlight a film that covered the last eight years of the Black Artist Retreat, which is a retreat that I hold in Chicago and really celebrate people and artists as a kind of living architecture. 
So it's about putting people first into architecture. I mean, why do you think so often people are almost an afterthought in the built environment? I don't think it's uh, an intentional disregard. I think that the the question of a building and the, the considerations necessary to make a great building are many. And so sometimes it's easier to listen to the client on the front end, figure out what the thing needs to be, and then you go away and you, and you design. But sometimes it's really hard to understand what will an atrium feel like when 200 people are in it. And I tend to think about those things while I'm making, or I tend to allow people to occupy my spaces while the spaces are being built. So I have a good sense of the temperature of a room because people are always in it as I'm making. When you're designing at the scale of uh, the city, it's hard to know how to do that. But it's one of the things that I want architecture to grapple with more and more. Is your hope that, I guess, people come away from this and they they really start to tackle with that? Or is is there something else that you're hoping people that watch the film take away? Well, the first thing I hope is that by coming to the Biennale, people leave the Biennale feeling like, wow, the entire gamut of the world of architecture is covered. And so we, we need people to think about small interventions in space, big interventions in space, big interventions out of space. And, you know, what seems evident here is so many underknown, underserved communities, so many black spaces around the world, what those spaces look and feel like. I think Leslie's done an amazing job at creating a constellation of understanding of spaces that would never normally make it into the Biennale. And then my contribution with this film is to show black artists in their spaces, how we occupy space, how we celebrate, how we're critical, how we mass. And I hope that people will see a very beautiful complement to what Chicago is and not just some of the things that we see on television, which are like misnomers of violence and lack, lack, lack. I want to show joy, 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 more, more, more. Amazing. And then you're also here for Prada as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how that ties in with the Biennale as a whole? Yeah, so a few years ago, I approached the Prada Corporation and shared with them that I wanted to create a strategy for celebrating black designers and artists of varying kind, and that I would use the Prada platform to amplify voices that were already doing really good in their field, but maybe the fashion world didn't know of them or the bigger world, my world, didn't know of them. And they agreed to help me create this project that we call the Experimental Design Lab. We chose 14 people from a selection process. We gave them resources. We all went to Milan and looked at some fashion. We, we got to know some of the directors of the corporation. And the, the hope was to try to build a bridge between great artist thinkers and this company. And if that went well, we would be able to build more bridges to um, more designers and more companies. We're just in the second of three years of this first cohort, and already I feel like at least from our first cohort that great opportunities have come, and maybe six of us are in the Biennale out of the 14 selected. So I feel like we had our finger on the pulse of hot, hot designers, and um, maybe even 
by having Prada support and the amplification, they were able to be in a, in a project like this. How important is something like that and, and something like the Black Artist Retreat to nurturing creative communities? Why put so much energy into, I guess, these relationship building exercises in a way? Well, what often happens is if, if there's a history of tokenism where it seems like one guy gets all the opportunity. Well, what I'm trying to do is propose that it is true that sometimes opportunities aggregate toward key individuals. Then key individuals have the ability to fragment that opportunity and share it with others. I think that I've just been preoccupied with trying to create a bunch of different ways that I can share the opportunities and access that I have. And I don't know if I'm doing it perfectly, but I feel like the thing I want to do is share the privilege of access. And this year, you know, I feel like, okay, even if others don't know what is happening with the Experimental Design Lab or the History of Black Artists Retreat, this year I feel really good about, um, in a way, my practice coming at more like a plinth to other people's great works of art and great design ideas. And to be honest, I don't feel like I've lost anything by giving it all away. One of the things that, that I've reflected on by being here is that you realize the Western canon of architecture has worked very hard to exclude some voices and some architectural forms from the canon. And whether that was intentional or not intentional, it feels very important in this moment that architectural historians, curators, creatives have the courage to find the forms that have been absent from the canon and add those forms back to the canon because they are often the spaces where you find deep sustainability, deep local material use, smart circular economies, amazing use of local labor, and not have to export or import ideas or materials from other places. My hat's off to Leslie Loco and and to the team for putting together such a beautiful compilation of voices. My thanks to Theasty Gates there. Uh, Now, Maylee, I obviously always kind of jump the gun and want to get my stories in first, and you were so gracious in letting me do that. But now I have to throw it over to you. Tell us some of your highlights from the year. Are there a few, or or, or do you just want to dive into one in particular? Well, I think um, there's always going to be a few. Um, I think going to three days of design over in Copenhagen was an amazing experience, but I think it's also important to say that there's lots of amazing events that are happening and exhibitions sharing the stories of designers that have maybe been overlooked or, or maybe not um, appreciated for their, for their breadth of work. So one of my highlights that I want to get into uh, was of an exhibition at London's Institute of Contemporary Arts, the ICA, um, and it was called Moki Cherry Here and Now, and it's the Swedish designer, artist and educator who was quite prominent in the 60s and 70s. You know, her work spans textiles, ceramics, woodwork. Um, but for me, what was really key and I, I, I kind of liked reflecting on was this idea of your creative practice being uh, intertwined with your home life and there not being this very strict border between the two and seeing how they can coalesce. Um, so I had the opportunity to speak to the exhibition director. So we're going to hear a little extract from that now. My name is Naima Carlson and I am a granddaughter of Moki Cherry and I work looking after her estate and artworks and the Cherry Archive which is the collections and archival material of my grandparents Don and Moki Cherry. 
Moki really, from her kind of like late teens, she was really focused on studying pattern cutting. She also worked in a women's fashion house making coats. She went on to study in Stockholm at the Beckman School of Design where then she was there like quite a few years redeveloping all her skills as a fashion designer. That's really where their like creative basis and education was through different circumstances, meeting Don Cherry, who became her partner, a jazz musician from the United States. Through them also having a family together and then just like many different life circumstances of constantly having to move places and often not having work etc needing to survive her career took a totally different direction she first started painting stage sets and then realized that that really wasn't practical because she just have to leave them behind and they couldn't travel they were often just like traveling with few bags she quickly realized she could use her textile skills to make stage environments instead and started making tapestries first she was mainly making them for like the posters for a concert and making costumes and then they kind of like grew and became larger and you know she made some incredible and really large tapestry pieces it was really like through a need for survival which i think is actually a really important aspect of her work that she reinterpreted the like conventions of like textile and her skills with design and sewing to make these like huge textile applique pieces that were then used in many different projects And this exhibition brings together lots of different um, media. We've got video in this room over here. We've got the textiles, as we've spoken about. How important was it to showcase the breadth of Moki's work and that she was not confined to one media? Being involved as a co-curator in this show, for me, it was a great opportunity to be able to be really involved in the artwork selection process. Moki is well known for the textiles that she made. I really kind of wanted to show that she worked in many other mediums over different decades. She often would like really be focused on one material, on um, say the wood sculptures, light sculptures, collage, ceramics. Yeah, it was really important for me to make sure that this show included some of these other works also from later time periods. In the exhibition, we made sure to include and like show that how she worked throughout, you know, the different times in her life. There is one motto that I came across um, that Moki lived by, and that was, the stage is home, home is a stage. It seems to me that it was really important that there wasn't this barrier or delineation between her practice and her home life. Could you talk to me a little bit about what that was like maybe growing up? Yeah, it's a quote that people really love and are inspired by from Moki. Being her granddaughter and having grown up with her, I guess it's kind of a really different perspective. But I think that definitely, for me, what that really means is how much her artwork and creativity is completely embedded in everyday life. Living in your practice and really living day-to-day -day for creativity and creating and discipline as well, like really making sure to use your time to put into, you know, the things that she believed in creatively, but at the same time that might just be 
the space where you live. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that every day is like thinking about making something for an exhibition. It could be much more just the way you approach cooking a meal, repairing clothes or making clothes or in the garden, all these things. When I think about it more, I try to really understand what maybe she meant by that stage is home and home is stage. And I guess it's really like bringing into daily life what you find meaningful, what you want to be creating for them, you know, bringing the music and artwork into daily family life. When there were performances, and what I think was quite radical in a way, what Don and Moki did, for example, their organic music theatre project, in the performances was also children there, you know, it was like bringing together like your family life with like jazz music was not so conventional at the time. It's kind of quite revolutionary in a way, I think, to like say, well, you're just going to bring on to the stage exactly what, what you believe in in your daily family life and ways that those kind of like values and daily practices can also be shared with an audience and be educational and also be part of your performance. I wanted to ask about the role of education in that. I mean, you kind of touched on it there, that inclusion of children and not sort of shying away from the unexpectedness they might bring to a space. And Mm. for you, how does education fall into this? Moki always had a focus on working with children. And, for example, even in early designs I've seen of when she was still studying at college, she made this kind of, like, instructions for children to make costumes she did some like editorial jobs involving children and family. So I think that that was obviously always something that she was interested in. In the later writings in the 2000s, she kind of basically was talking about how many of the like New York galleries didn't really appreciate what she was doing, but that children had always been a consistent audience for her. <laughs> <laughs> Both her and Don were very much, um, in their collaborations especially, really focused on working with children. Education was really a focus, and I think that they really believed in wanting to do something that also was really benefiting other people, not just doing things for their own career, but doing something that actually could make an impact, hopefully make a difference. So I think that they were really thinking about how reaching children is like also contributing to the future, to the next generation. You know, so they travelled, especially 1972, they went and travelled all around Sweden to 88 schools in one year, teaching children's workshops, where they would bring lots of different instruments, bring the tapestries and like learn songs from the tapestries, learn songs from a country where a certain instrument was from. And they basically spent one whole year just doing that. And that was really a priority for them. But it's interesting because they still combine that with having concerts at jazz festivals and Moki had you know, a solo exhibition with a lot of artworks in in the next year. So it was really all interconnected. That was the exhibition curator of Moki Cherry Here and Now, Naima Carlson. We'll be right back after this. There's a chill in the air. It's time to hunker down with the new winter issue of Confect. Let us whisk you to high-altitude resorts for cross-country skiing and guide you to handsome stop-offs around Europe and beyond 
for a spot of Christmas shopping. Our sparkling brand new jewellery special explores the allure of wearing beautiful pieces for special soirees and everyday elegance. From snowy chalets to bountiful wreaths and tree decorations, our design pages will inspire and inform your winter interiors. Our food section will deliver all you need for a season of joyful hosting, from recipes to fine wines. This issue is full of winter wonder and adventure. We head to the Himalayan peaks of Nepal to check in at an extraordinary inn and cultural fulcrum, and you'll find us shusting through fresh powder in Europe's undiscovered snow hole. Finally, indulge, reset, and dive into Iceland's thermal pools as we tell tales of island folklore and draw inspiration from sublime volcanic vistas. Confect's winter issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at confectmagazine.com. Welcome back to Monocle on Design. This is our best of episode looking back at the year that was in 2023. So we've been in London, Nick, uh, but we've also ventured elsewhere. We've had pop-up studios that we've broadcast from. Where are we heading to next? I mean, I want to go back to Italy, but I, I, I want to just pause on the pop-up studios there for a moment. I mean, we, we did our own temporary one uh, at Three Days of Design in Copenhagen, which you did reference earlier. And uh, I would also, can we can we encourage people to go back and look that episode up? When you say pop-up studios, studio I think that's a very generous well I mean pop up by pop up studio I mean we were recording in a I guess a parking lot in an ex-industrial part of Copenhagen but certainly if there are microphones and recorders there and a producer and a host I think it's a pop up studio where I will go though is a, is a much more polished pop up studio which uh, we set up at Salona del Mobile in Milan in April this year uh, that was in partnership with the House of Switzerland and we we had uh, you know proper, I guess, fixed microphones rather than field recorders like we had in Copenhagen. Uh, and we, we were lucky enough, Salone del Mobile is the world's biggest design event, and we were lucky enough to have a host of amazing household names come through our doors, but also some emerging designers. And I think perhaps it was it was those conversations with emerging designers that I enjoyed most. We had uh, Andrea Rosso and Fabiola Di Virgilio, their partners in business and in life, uh, and the founders of Red Duo, a young homewares brand established in 2020. I mean, I say that they're emerging designers, they both have amazing careers prior to Red Duo, but I really want to focus on Red Duo, which is their current project. Monocle's Grace Charlton interviewed them. But what I liked about this chat was the fact that you get an insight into what it's like to set up a brand with your partner. And I really just enjoyed, I guess, the back and forth between Andrea and Fabiola and maybe Grace uh, cheekily provoking them a little bit. And I think that comes across in, in this conversation. The thing is that uh, Red Duo, it's the union of two minds. And uh, from our home, uh, we developed many objects. Uh, objects that we were missing in our life, in our intimate space. So suddenly we created those uh, objects made also from artigiana coming from our hometown. It happens that uh, the object many of our friends, they like it. They say, hey, where did you buy this? I said, no, no, we, we make it. And uh, so from that, uh, we start to evolve the the project yeah shops ask to buy it so why not yeah of course <laughs> and I, I love the way as well that you do ceramics and textiles do you want to expand even yeah. to other forms absolutely in fact the new drop came out in september about another story Reduo is a brand for uh, home and people 
So we want to keep this very in mind because it's for, you live out of your house, but also something for you. It will be a surprise. It's cool, you get to like test your own products in your own home and you like I guess you live together I'm assuming so you can maybe have that conversation like But we don't have a conversation, we have many fights. Oh. So that's uh, <laughs> but that's the beauty of you know, when you have a discussion, uh, you find the meeting point and that's where the magic happens. So we're happy to, to share different ideas. Actually, If we were uh, monotone with the same idea, we'd be so boring. At least there is a little bit of sparkling fire there. Yeah, because we have completely a different view. So it is interesting and uh, strange at the same time, but at the same time we found a final combination that works for both of us. So. What kind of things do you disagree on? Not to bring up bad feelings. Everything, like uh, colors, uh, texture, even shape sometimes. We have to understand what we really think uh, in order to find the best solution. But that's the beauty, because I think that um, maybe uh, Fabiola is a more like um, romantic or also very white, uh, very uh, cotton, salty types of Mediterranean. Uh, Mediterranean feeling. And the moon coming from the mountain, so I guess uh, the, the contrast is there. You know, when you meet at a certain point in the center, uh, for us is the, the best time. Yeah, pushing each other to do better, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> My thanks to Andrea Rosso and Fabiolo Di Virgilio in conversation with Monocle's Grace Charlton. May Lee Evans, Monocle on Design, producer extraordinaire. What are we rounding up our, our 2023 recap with? We are finishing today's best of show with a monologue from Jack Simpson. Um, and I've picked this piece because I think it captures the importance of not focusing always on what's the newest thing that's come out and actually to reflect on what you've already got in your own life. What can you actually use that's already lying about? What are those projects that maybe you've been meaning to tend to? How can we maybe refresh or repair what, we've, what we already have rather than focus on acquiring more and more? I think that's kind of a, an approach to design that I, I hold dear. Can I jump in here? Yeah. One thing I really, really, I, I'm also very familiar with this piece, and one thing I really, really liked about it was it was, to me, a reminder that design isn't about, uh, you know, just something that is confined to architects or interior designers or furniture makers. But for me, Jack, and we know him very well, he's one of our colleagues, uh, he's not a handyman. I think he's got a degree in, in politics and history. But he's out there making things with his hands, really engaging in design. And I think that's what we hope uh, people take away from some of these reports. And I think this one illustrated that really well, that design really is for all of us. There's something about finding time to hone a new skill over the summer holidays. Whether it's getting your hands dirty and finally building that back deck, or blowing the dust off your workbench and putting those welding classes to use. For me, inspiration for this year's project came in the form of Bauhaus's finest work, a well-worn Marcel Brewer B32 chair, more commonly known as the Cheska chair. I managed to pick one up off the pavement in London, and, though the cane on the seat was torn, its curving tubular steel frame and rattan backrest were otherwise ready to leave Knoll's factory floor. And while the folks at Chase & Sorensen, outstanding retailers of vintage European design in East London, stock such a chair, the burgeoning restorer in me wanted to get out. Having not completed a worthwhile hands-on project since I spent a week as a landscape gardener at university, I was a little out of practice. 
But with the help of some online videos and some advice from the aforementioned team at Chase & Sorensen, I acquired all the information that I needed. A chisel, a hammer, glue, a length of rattan cane, and patience. After a few pisco sours and a couple of hours of trial and error, I had a mint condition Cheska in my position. The exercise was a reminder of the value of learning a new skill and fixing something that you love during the summer, when the pace of life is slower. If you're a novice, it's a great way to add some character to your home. And if you're a creative, such activities can be inspirational and informative, allowing you to explore new and traditional materials. Perhaps if I was a furniture designer, an aspect of brewer's chair might find a way into my work. Today, my Cheska chair sits confidently in the corner of my bedroom, gathering a small collection of books. It looks the part, though the time I spent repairing out in the sun is what brings me joy. Next, I'm looking to restore something better suited to display my library. Thanks to Monocle's Jack Simpson there. Uh, and, and that's all for today's show. Maylee, any closing remarks for 2023 uh, for our listeners? Take a moment to rest before the next year comes in. Take a moment to reflect because the next year will come hurtling through. <laughs> it always does. Uh, for more design stories, I would normally suggest that you go and listen to our Monocle on Design Extra, which is a bonus episode airing on Thursdays. But while we're taking a little bit of a New Year break, we're going to put pause on them for a couple of weeks. So instead... Can I suggest diving back into our archive and, and revisiting a few of your favourite pieces? Uh, you never know, like Maylee and myself, you might pick up a few new insights. Uh, and of course, if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and co-hosted and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.